Well, this morning we come to one of those uh, truths in this series of messages that Ben and I have entitled Inconvenient and Inconvenient Truth. Uh, a truth that I suppose is somewhat challenging uh, to address and may be somewhat challenging to hear. Uh, first, let me say that it is not my intent to be graphic or distasteful or suggestive in any of my remarks this morning. But I do want you to know that I plan, with God's help and empowerment of the Spirit, to be straightforward and, I suppose at times, uh, even blunt. I trust that you will not be offended by uh, the tone of forthrightness with, with which I deliver the message that God has laid on my heart, but instead that you are committed, just as I am, to grapple uh, with these issues and search the Scriptures like good Bereans. And regarding this inconvenient truth today about human sexuality, that uh, we would uh, commit to encouraging one another on the narrow road of discipleship. Because if we can't speak truthfully to one another about the pitfalls and roadblocks that we all face, uh, where, where can we do it? Understandably, this morning's topic is one that, that as I say, creates a, a level of discomfort. Maybe you don't approve of the, the pastor speaking about this particular topic from the church's pulpit. But it, it is my opinion that typically the church of Jesus Christ and pastors have failed when it comes to training our people in godliness with regards to human sexuality. Somewhere along the line, we have fallen short. There have been some vacant spaces. We say that we care tremendously about personal holiness, and in particular, sexual holiness. But it seems to me that somehow the church is failing in its effort to equip people to lead holy lives that are... And it's not working as well as we would have hoped or imagined. I believe that we in the church dare not shy away from this truth. That's why we were intentional, including it in this series of messages. The church must speak about this. Recently, the chaplains at the University of Nebraska took a survey of incoming freshmen into their university, and they asked them uh, the question, how much influence did your church have on your views of sexuality? Of the freshmen who were surveyed, 2% said that their church had anything to do with their own personal views. 2%. Some of the comments included in the survey are, are worth mentioning, I think, here this morning. To, to, to Again, to illustrate how I think the church is failing in, in this regard. Uh, some of the comments from this survey said, people in my church don't believe in sex. Another student said, our church is boring. They don't talk about sex or dating or marriage. It's probably just as well they would make that boring too. <laughs> Another freshman student said, in our youth group in high school, we talked about the issues some, but we avoided the juicy stuff. If it's true that the church is not talking uh, 
adequately on this issue, then it, it seems to me that the church is the only one that's not speaking about it. I defy you to make it through an evening of television without finding somebody who's climbing into bed with another person who he or she is not married to. Or listen to the typical conversation that, goes, uh, that takes place in the workplace. It will not be long before some kind of off-color joke with sexual innuendo will eventually surface in that conversation. Or try to read a newspaper without finding something about a sexual scandal or some sexually explicit advertisement or a desperate person placing a desperate ad for someone to come and meet their needs. It seems to me that one of the marks of our contemporary society today is its increasing sexualization. Sex has become the way we define ourselves, the way uh, that, that pursues our dreams and our identities and our natures. And, and by sex, I mean the raw physical nature of it, the pursuit of it, the engagement in it. It seems to me that when it comes to marketing, that Madison Avenue has not shied away from using sex to sell. And we use sex to sell everything from cars to lawnmowers. In fact, it is becoming more and more amazing to me the products that marketers shamelessly market using sexual innuendo. When it comes to clothing, being sexually attractive to another person is the ultimate pursuit, or so it seems. Celebrities become celebrities because of their sex appeal. When it comes to the way human existence is portrayed on television or in the movie theater, it's as if sex or the desire for it drives our every waking moment. And if it doesn't, the world is saying it should. It should be on your mind all the time. And if you don't have sex on your mind, then there's something wrong with you. Something isn't right. So in this current cultural context, I believe that the church must speak. We should not be surprised that 3, 4, 75% of all high school students say that they've had sexual, sexual intercourse by the time they graduate. That one out of every five listed at least half a dozen partners and one out of every six said that they'd lost their virginity by the time they turned age, age 13. And before you think that's just a bunch of kids blowing smoke, health records indicate that the United States of America has the highest rate of teen pregnancy, teen abortion, and teen childbirth in the industrialized world. Obviously, something is very, very wrong. So into this sexually saturated context, the church must speak. And so it is without apology this morning that I want to address this truth, however inconvenient it may be for me to preach it and inconvenient for you to hear. You probably don't want this message to be over more than I do. I wish it were done. What does the Bible have to say about this? Frankly, quite a bit. And we don't have time to explore all the, the avenues where Scripture takes us, but I, I want to look at what I think is one of the most eloquent passages of Scripture that speaks to this particular issue. 
It comes out of the passage that Pastor Dave read earlier in our worship from the first book of the Bible from Genesis. Look at what the scriptural text has to say. It says that the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God made a woman and brought her to the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife, later down in verses 24 and 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So here in the opening chapters of God's Word, we have the clearest statement imaginable that God made Adam, Adam, a man of specific gender. He made him a man with sexuality, a man who both wanted and needed and desired a woman. Eve. And that that desire was not just an emotional connection, but a physical one as well. And according to God's design, the man and the woman, uh, Adam and Eve, were to become one flesh. And so one of the foundational points I want to make this morning as we think about this truth is this, that, that human sexuality is God's idea. It's God's design. It's part of God's created order and His divine economy. Did you notice the last line of of that passage from Genesis we read there? That they were both naked and they felt no shame. That wasn't just because of a good Weight Watchers weigh-in that week. Naked is not just a physical description. Naked there is a a description of Adam and Eve's emotional, spiritual, and psychological state. They had absolutely nothing to hide. They could be totally transparent with one another. They didn't need to manipulate one another. They did not need to hide things from one another. They were naked, Scripture says. Totally transparent and they were unashamed. They were safe and secure in that relationship. And under God's design, in His created order, human sexuality is something that's good. And so the church must stop telling the lie that sex is a bad thing. Human sexuality, as practiced in God's created order, is a good thing. God declared it that way Himself. God's vision For humanity is established here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we learn that God created a unique relationship that we call the covenant of marriage. For Adam and Eve to enjoy this intimacy with one another. And in a graphic speech, Adam speaks of his his and Eve's becoming one flesh. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He talks about one fleshness. Now, I want you to understand that one fleshness is physical. It is. But it's clear that one fleshness is more than physical. In God's eyes, one fleshness is not just anatomical and has to do with a fleshly body. It's not just about recreation and procreation, but one fleshness has to do with our souls as well. And if you understand this and that this is part of God's created design, then you understand what Jesus meant when centuries later he looked back to this verse in Genesis and he said, what God has brought together, let no one separate. 
Now, we hear those words at Christian weddings all the time. Uh, Let those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Jesus is not giving a warning there. We hear it as a warning. He's not giving a warning. What he's doing is stating a fact. That when a man and a woman come together in this unique marital covenant and relationship in sexual intimacy, not only are their bodies united, but their spirits are united. And that because they are united in this unique and sacred covenant, that no one should try to separate it. These words are not a warning. Instead, Jesus is stating what I think is an axiomatic law. Like, if you jump off of a tall building, you will hit the ground and you probably will also die. You don't get a vote in that. It's going to happen. It's an axiomatic law. It's part of God's economy. It just is. Jesus' words, I think, about what God has joined together, let no one put asunder or seek to separate, are again an axiomatic law that have to do with our human sexuality. So it it would stand to reason then that when a man and woman in the covenant of marriage come together physically, that that husband and wife are bonded not only physically, but they are bonded in their souls too. That is, that the immaterial part of a man and woman, their spirits are fused to the other person. And when that has occurred, nobody can pull it apart. It's an axiomatic law. It's like two streams that flow together into one river. One mile downstream, if you try to separate the water from one stream from the other, it will be impossible to do because the waters have flown together into one and they are forever fused. Now you say, Rick, why are you going into all that? I I, I want to make a point. That when you engage in this gift of God in, in expressing your sexuality, you are touching not only somebody's body, but you are also touching their soul at the deepest part of them. And that is why, and it explains why I think there's so much hurt and guilt tied up with sexuality. Because we've lost the sense of holiness and sacredness of it. Ask people who are divorced, and they will tell you that there's nothing as painful as the pulling apart of two souls that were once united. Or if you have sex with someone who is not your covenant partner, to whom you are not married, take a hard look in the mirror the next morning and ask yourself how good you're feeling. Why is it that you feel so empty? You feel empty because someone has robbed you of a piece of your soul. And my fear today, my dear friends, is this. That because of the the sexual revolution in which we find ourselves in this world and the multiple partners that people have, that they are leaving pieces of their soul all over the horizon. And they are being destroyed in their inner person. No other human activity has the same power as sexual intimacy. It is the supreme expression of a a relationship, the ultimate emotional unity. And it's for that reason and in light of that scriptural reality that the Bible teaches us something that's very countercultural, that is against the wave of culture. Here's what the Bible says, pure and simple. The Bible says that sexual intimacy 
is to take place within the context of a marriage, hear each word of this sentence. That sexual intimacy is to take place in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And in that context alone. One man, one woman, bound together covenantally with one another. And that is the home for this gift of God. That includes sex outside of marriage, after marriage, or before marriage. Sex has a home and it's within marriage. And the Bible does not back down on this. For example, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The bottom line is this. God created this wonderful gift for our use and pleasure for marriage. And according to the Bible... I mean, if you want to talk about modern psychology and you want to talk about what maybe your friends and your peers are doing, but according to the Bible, it is impossible to defend sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage. Now, I know to our 21st century sensibilities and our sexual mores that I think are being more influenced by Cosmo magazine and Hollywood than they are than the Bible that this may sound very prudish and might sound to you like old-fashioned hooey. But it is the simple, if sometimes inconvenient, truth of Scripture. I like what Lauren Winner says in her book, Real Sex. She says this. The words are there. The no to sex outside marriage seems arbitrary and cruel apart from the Creator's yes to sex within marriage. Indeed, one can say that in Christianity's vocabulary, the only real sex is the sex that happens in a marriage. The faux sex that goes on outside marriage is not really sex at all. The physical coming together that happens between two people who are not married is only a distorted imitation. As Walt Disney's Wilderness Lodge Resort is only a simulation of a real wilderness. The danger is that when we spend too much time in the simulations we lose the capacity to distinguish between the facsimile, the ersatz, and the real. So that the idea, if you come to this with the idea that the Bible is against it and, oh, it's a bad thing, it's not. It's pro-sex, it's for it, it's in favor of it, it's a fan of it. Yet it calls for specific boundaries because it's such a high, holy, and sacred gift of God. And there's a vast difference, my friends, a vast difference between God's design as it is outlined in Scripture and the design for sexuality that is being promulgated in our world today. God's design is one that's meant for your good, for intimacy, union, community, pleasure, fulfillment, and completion. It brings God's blessing, God's smile, and personal peace and wholeness. But the world's pattern for it does not do that. The world's pattern really is, is really not sex, it's lust. It's a distortion. Lust takes this beautiful, wonderful gift of God that God has given to men and women for their intimacy and pleasure within marriage. 
and makes it, lust makes it no more than a fleshly appetite, a desire, a physical craving to be filled, something to be satisfied. I like C.S. Lewis's words on the distorted emphasis of lust. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think that there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us. God designed this to be something that we share together in the bounds and the context of a marriage, a covenant partnership, and it represents the deepest community and intimacy that a man and woman can have. Lust, on the other hand, is isolated, alone, reduces everything to an object, and only knows desire. And technology has only added to the isolation. I'm alarmed. I'm alarmed. Because now we sit in rooms and office cubicles in our own homes and through computers. We watch strangers undress and have sexual intimacy. And it's not just among the people who are sitting in the pew. A recent survey in Leadership Magazine among pastors found that 40% of pastors struggled with pornography. And I want to tell you that these kinds of addictions are deadening to the soul and they are destroying people, and marriages, right and left. The purpose of what the Bible has to say, the boundaries that is set, is not to cramp our styles or limit our pleasure, but is instead meant to free us up to experience the abundant life. Ben is absolutely right in his emphasis as he talks about these rules, these inconvenient truths are meant to lead us to an abundantly good life. It's awfully quiet in here this morning. I want to bring this message home. I want to concentrate on several things that I think that we as Christians need to commit to related to this truth. Commitment number one, we need to commit to confession and humble repentance before God and acknowledge our own fallenness. It's easy in church for people to pretend that they don't have a problem or, vo- or are vulnerable in this area. But all of us have been affected in one way or another. I don't know how you've been affected, but undoubtedly you have been. Maybe you're affected by being tempted to escape your own spouse, if you have one, by fantasizing about having sexual intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. Maybe you've been affected because you're aware that we live in a society that idolizes sexual attractiveness in which beauty is power, 
So you find yourself too attached to the need to appear sexually desirable. And so you go to great lengths and lots of expense to make yourself sexually appealing. Maybe you're jealous of someone who is more attractive than you are and a root of jealousy is growing in your heart. And that's the way it's affecting you. Or you find yourself flirting inappropriately with someone else to prove your attractiveness and your appeal. Maybe you struggle with some form of sexual addiction. Maybe you struggle with homosexual feelings. Maybe you've been playing with fire and already you've been burnt. You've crossed a line or crossed multiple lines that you know you shouldn't have crossed. The truth is this, we're all fallen. And we need to acknowledge our fallenness before God. And the wonderful truth about all of this is that if we confess our sin to God, that He'll forgive. He longs to forgive. Some of you carry deep guilt in this area, but let me assure you that that nothing that you've ever done in your past is so bad that it, it, it cannot be covered by Jesus' death on the cross. His blood is, his shed blood on Calvary is powerful. It is efficacious. It, it, it will cover those past sin stains. And you can be forgiven and washed of those sin stains. 1 John 1 9, jump ahead to it, Marla, will you? 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us and he will cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. He will forgive anything, but you must first confess. We must commit to an acknowledgement of our fallen nature and commit to confession. Commitment number two, as a Christian church and people, we need to commit to accept God's gift. We must be grateful for the gift that God has given, that He has made us sexual beings, even though there may be times that we have problems handling it. God created us male and female for each other. Uh, Next week, I don't know why I get all of these. I'm going to have to talk to Ben about this. But next week, I get to deal with the inconvenient truth of homosexuality. And how does the church respond to that today? in the world in which we live. Uh, Just to give you a little prelude, I believe that God made us male and female for each other. And that the covenant state of marriage is meant for a man and a woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And I will address that issue biblically and, and compassionately and with love and tenderness and gentleness, but I'm not going to shrink back from the truth. God created us male and female for each other. God designed sexuality. It was not some great mistake that God made when He ran out of good ideas. When Eve was brought to Adam, Adam's response was not, wow, I bet she has a great personality. When God brought Eve to Adam, I think He said, Wow! Wow! Yay, God! You did it right! 
We need to be grateful for God's gift. For some of us, this will be hard. Admittedly, there are some of us in this room that will find this, acknowledging that this gift is from God and that it's good, it will be hard because some of us have been victims of incest or abuse or, or some trauma of one sort or another. And if you've been in that state, you may need to see a Christian counselor and, and work through some of those old wounds and hurts. You may need to invest heavily spiritually in the process of exposing your soul to the healing power of Christ until you can reach a point where you can honestly say, thank you, God, for this wonderful gift. Thank you, Lord, for making me human, making me with a body, that you didn't just make me a disembodied spirit, but that you, you made me with this male body. You made me with this female body. Thank you, Lord, that you've given to the human race the capacity for oneness within the covenant of marriage. We need to make a commitment to accept God's gift. Third and finally, we need to make a commitment to live by God's standards. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, said in in chapter 4 and verse 3, it is God's will, God's will, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. You want to know what God's will? He wants you to walk in holiness. He wants you to walk in sexual holiness. This means that as a Christ follower, you and I are committed to, to restrict a sexual relationship to a permanent commitment of marriage. Abstinence before marriage, fidelity in marriage. Because I don't want you to misquote me, I'm going to say it again. Abstinence before marriage, fidelity in marriage. And any, hear me, Any other kind of sexual expression, as far as God is concerned, is off-limits. No compromise, no dealing, no cutting corners. It is off-limits. And the life that is lived inside the contours of God's guidelines in this will make us fully human and will introduce us to an abundant life. As I close, I need to say a word to single people. Single adults are living in a society today where it's countercultural not to be sexually active. A society that finds it weird, frankly, if you don't have multiple sexual partners. And while all of us are fallen and we all struggle to remain pure and holy in us, I believe that there's a unique struggle for those who are are called among us as single. We live in a culture that, that insists that you're not really an adult until you get married. That a single person is somehow abnormal. That you're normal if you're married, you're abnormal if you're single. That should not be the case in the church, in the body of Christ. There is no distinction between those who are married and those who are single. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. All of us are of the same value. Those who are married and those who are single. And together as the people of God, those who are single and those who are married, together as the family of God, we need to pray for one another that we might be accountable to one another and lead holy lives that are pleasing to God. We need to commit to holding to God's standards. 
whether we're single or married. And to succeed in holding to that commitment, we need to encourage one another, we need to pray for one another, and we need to hold each other accountable. And so I'm encouraging singles and married people to do this together as a family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We should not assume that a married couple is the basic unit of Christian identity, but instead recognize that those who are not married, those who are not married, occupy a critical and distinct place in God's family and in His divine economy. And there should be no, none, prejudice or bias against them. The greatest example that we have of a life that was well-lived was that of Jesus Christ. And may I remind you that He was fully man, and He was single, and He never married, and He had no children, and He lived a perfectly chaste life. So while sexuality is essential to our nature, sexual activity is not essential to living a good life. Because Jesus lived the best life there was. So how in the world do I pull this all together, these loose threads? Let me try it this way. This gift of God, in which God created us male and female for each other, and which in God's design and created order was meant to be experienced in the context of a covenant partnership and relationship between one man and one woman. is something that is to be celebrated and enjoyed and maximized, but only within the context of marriage. And that if you are not in a covenant partnership, the inconvenient truth is that it's off limits. It's off limits. Abstinence before marriage, fidelity in marriage. And all other expression of it is off limits. And that as the church, we need to be committed to, one, acknowledging our fallenness and our own humanness and our vulnerability in this area. We need to be committed to keeping the accounts with God short and and confessing our sin before God and being real with God and where we are struggling. We need to be committed to being grateful for the gift that God has given us. Do not deny our maleness, our femaleness. Do not deny this wonderful gift that is ours from God's loving hand. But accept it and celebrate it and be grateful for it. Thank God for it. And then we need to be committed to hold to God's standard. Always. Single, married, holding to God's stand, holding each other up, praying for one another, encouraging one another, staying true to the Word of God. I'll tell you, it's not easy to do this, to make this kind of commitment. But I believe that, that if we would make these commitments to God and to one another, that our lives and our church could become a, an island of sanity in a sea of sexual chaos. And that God, if we follow this truth, no matter how inconvenient it may seem, if we follow this truth, that God will, by His grace, 
lead us into a life of abundance and fullness. Beyond compare. That's my desire. I hope it's yours as well. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, as we uh, conclude our time together this morning, I, I fear that I may be confused or left wondering. So will your Spirit translate all of this to our hearts and help us, like good Bereans, to search the Word. Help us, Lord, to walk in the ways of holiness, whether married or single, Especially in this area, Lord, help us to uh, seek to discipline our bodies and our minds and spirits. We acknowledge our frailty and our weakness and that the members of our bodies are frail. Have mercy on us, O God. In this world in which we live where there are so many voices and messages coming to us uh, that are contrary to the word, We pray, Lord, that you will help us to stand firm and not to compromise or give in, but to humbly follow the leading of the Lord and to live a life that you intended for us to do into this life of fullness and abundance that you've designed for us. Help us, Lord, to impress this upon our children and our youth as well. They are confronted with so many messages And pray that we will be faithful in teaching them the the wonderful design of God and the blessings that He has in store for married people. I pray a special blessing on those in our community of faith who are single. I pray, Lord, that uh, as they bless our lives in the brotherhood and sisterhood of believers here, that we will bless their lives and that together, hand in hand, we will walk in the ways of God and be a holy people, a special possession of yours. Now, Lord, we would pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you for the joy of, of welcoming these new little children this morning and to bless the families and pray your blessing on each one of them. That as we go into our mission field this week, that you'll go before us and prepare the way and that Truly, Lord, you will use us as light and salt to a dark and flavorless society. Keep us in your care and dismiss us with your peace. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.